0: We got one person excited. I love it. Um, hey, good morning, church. Does this feel better? Woo! Some of you are like, no, but I'm with those who said yes. My name is Branzisky, the lead pastor here at Austin Oaks. If you are new visiting with us, we want to let you know that we're a church that strives to be simply all about Jesus, which is also why we love to celebrate baptisms because it is a reflection. It's a choice of an individual choosing to give their heart and their allegiance and their loyalty to King Jesus. And so I love being able to be a church that celebrates that. Um, If you haven't grabbed your Revelation Bible Journal, I want to encourage you, please do so. Um, We want to give that to you as a resource. That way when you come throughout this whole series on Revelation, that you're able to follow along with the scriptures. You can take your own notes or take notes from whoever is um, sharing the message that morning. And also to take it with you when you're engaging in your small groups. If your small group is deciding to do the study guide material, or you can do that on your own. I want to encourage you that this here on Sunday mornings is not sufficient for you to be able to take this message of revelation deep into the parts of your heart that the Lord would intend for you to take it, okay? So I want to encourage you to do that. If you, if you don't have one, I encourage you, feel free. Get on up, walk on out, grab one, come on back, okay? Don't walk on out and keep going. Come on back, okay? Okay. Um, We're going to get right into it. I was joking. I wasn't joking because it's not a joke. It's true. Um, Typically, my notes, (laughs) my notes per sermon, it's about 13 to 14 pages. And you're like, okay, so that's why we go an hour when you preach. I have 27 we're not going to do that. I did a lot of redacting, okay? And plus that we, we're going to be doing this for the long haul. It's like I'm not going to feel the pressure. It's like I got to get through all the content today. We're literally going to take our time through this letter, okay? So we're going to just jump right in. And, and I wanted to start by sharing with you a pretty embarrassing story. But when it happened, I wasn't that embarrassed, okay? The year was 1999, freshman in college, And I was walking home from class from Ruinona State. And I remember as I was walking past, I noticed this car and there was nothing really special about this car. It was like your stereotypical Minnesotan rust bucket car. You guys don't really understand how salt erodes. Like it's just, cars get rusty up north. It was a rust bucket of a car, but something on the back of it caught my attention. And on the back had this bumper sticker and I read it and it said, in case of rapture, this car would be unmanned. Now, I had no idea what the rapture was, okay? And so, like, it really, as my daughter says, it confuzzled me, right? And so, I was like, I'm sitting here going, what is the rapture? Now, Also context, Jurassic Park was kind of a big deal in the 90s. And so my brain, because I didn't, I'd never heard the word rapture in, in church growing up. I wasn't in any Christian circles because I wasn't a believer. So for some reason, my brain literally thought, is this a kind of raptor? Literally, I was like trying to go, okay, did I miss something? Is this like the second cousin of the raptor? So that makes sense. If the raptor busted into the car and devoured the dude, the car would be unmanned. Got it, right? And I'm like thinking about this the whole way as I'm walking home. But when I finally did get home, it just, you know, wasn't that important. I forgot about it. Until I bumped into another car, no joke, that had a bumper sticker that seemed to be in response to that bumper sticker. And it said something like this, like, in case of the Raptor, Raptor, can I have your car? (laughs) And, and like, I'm telling you now, I'm really confused. (laughs) I'm like, wait wait a second. So, actually, no, that actually makes sense. So, the Raptor ate the guy. The car is now free. So... Yeah, really embarrassing. I became a Christian in 2000. And I didn't know what the rapture was until 2001 after watching Left Behind. Now... And, and, like, I was asking my friends before, because I'm, like, totally naive to anything end times. I was like, so what's left behind all about? They're like, oh, it's about the apocalypse, the end of the time. It's about the book of Revelation. And I was like, okay, great. And I'm like, Kirk Cameron, really? Anyway, if <laughs> but anyhow, God, I, okay, come on. Like, and, and I remember watching it, and all of a sudden there was that scene, right, where all of a sudden the rapture happened in the twinkling of an eye, and... All chaos breaks loose. Cars are crashing into other cars because now whoever was driving is no longer there and that car is unmanned. It's not a dinosaur. <laughs> Got it, right? And like true story. I'm not joking. And like, even like pilots, you know, pilots who are followers of Jesus flying and the rapture happened and the plane crashes. I mean, it was just complete chaos. And this movie, like, just kind of like, oddly enough, it came out right, right after around 9-11. And most people are thinking, is this the end of the world? And opportunists tend to take advantage of these kind of apocalyptic type of events. But it stirred something up inside of me where I wanted to read the book of Revelation. I've never read it. I don't know anything about it. And I tried to read it. And the end result was confusion. Anybody with me? When you read Revelation, you're like, why does this thing have so many heads? Right? And, and you're just like, I, I, I'm trying to get it. And it, it didn't really like, capture my heart until I was in seminary. Because it was so confusing that I was just like, you know what? Jesus is coming back good enough, right? And I was just like, I'm not going to do that. That's just there for that. That's for, you know, experts. And I remember in seminary spending significant time reading it, dissecting it, talking about it, studying it, getting into the context and everything. And what I discovered was so breathtaking. So absolutely beautiful. So stunning and deeply encouraging, it moved my heart to want to worship Jesus more and more and more. And so ever since seminary, I come to discover that there's a lot of people that stay away from the letter of Revelation or the book of Revelation for a variety of reasons. One, like I just said, it's complex, it's confusion, full of numbers and symbols and all of these weird monsters and all of these things. Some people avoid it because it's scary. Right? There's like a fear element to it. And they're like, it just scares me. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to read about it. But then there's a whole other tribe of people who refuse to engage in it because of the misuse and misinterpretation of Revelation. Right? So many people in a church have disregarded the letter after seeing it being exploited by cult leaders, a fad end-time predictions and profits and all of the end-time speculators and, dare I say, end-time venture capitalists who will profit from speculation and fear. And so we're like, you know what? I'm good. Jesus is coming. That's all I need to know. In fact, so many people have just watered down the purpose or the meaning of Revelation simply to this. You don't want to be there when it happens, so get saved and get ready. (laughs) Is that really it? Is that what this letter is all about? I mean, this letter wasn't written actually to confuse the church. It wasn't written to scare the church or to even divide the church over opinions and different interpretations and theological constructs. Revelation, <laughs> go with me here, isn't even merely or even perhaps primarily about the future. What? It does talk about the future. It lays out things about the future, but it's really more prevalent to how we live today in our present. Revelation isn't a book about speculation. It's a book about discipleship. And we need to understand that because if we don't understand that this letter is about discipleship, we will take Revelation with us when we read the news and try to piece together the current events and then try to throw darts as to who we think the Antichrist is. That's not what Revelation is In fact, I love the way Eugene Peterson describes Revelation. He says it this way, that Revelation is not prediction. It's perception. It's being able to see what is true in the heavenlies, on the other side of the things we cannot see. And to be able to perceive these symbols and these images in order for us to be able to discern what's happening in our here and now. And how we should live faithful as disciples of Jesus in a world that is completely anti Jesus. I love that. It's not about prediction, it's about perception. And I think that if we understood that, that would put a lot of us at ease, right? Be like, well, okay, so how do I perceive what is? That's important. And I love the way Michael Gorman states this about Revelation. He says, Revelation is not about a rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. And I think we have gotten caught up a little bit in the Revelation end times pop culture that we fascinate with the rapture. And we find ourselves in this me versus them, I'm in, you're out kind of thing. I'm victorious, you're defeated. Us versus them. Instead of how do we live faithfully right now as disciples in a culture that's going to be pressing harder and harder and harder upon the bride of Christ. So I've given this this journey of Revelation, a subtitle called Stirred, Not Shaken, and I'm trying not to be cute, but kind of being cute. You know, a little bit of James Bond type of thing. But it's really like the Hebrews 12, 28, where the author of Hebrews is writing to encourage the church because they're facing persecution. It's the same kind of encouragement that John is giving to the churches in Asia Minor in Revelation. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Even though every other kingdom around us for all of history, past, present, and in the future will be shaken to the point of its ultimate demise, the church will not be shaken. However, God will use current events to stir the church up. So we receive the kingdom that will not be shaken to its demise, but he will use these events and allow certain things to happen to the church to stir us up to faithfulness to Jesus. Because every church and every generation is either going through some form of persecution, they're either being faithful in their present calling, or they have become complacent and have compromised to the empire of this world. And that's what Revelation is intended to do, is to stir up the church for all time. Absolutely important. So if you have ears to hear, I'm telling you, this letter will encourage you more than you realize. This letter will give you so much hope, more than you realize. It will give you a passion to follow hard after Jesus. And so we need to come with humility and say, Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning in this series during this time as a church? Now, a few disclaimers, okay? First and foremost, I'm scared. Because there's a lot of people in every church who is the self-designated revelation expert. <laughs> let, me, let me right now burst your bubble. You're not. Neither am I. Okay, the Holy Spirit is. And so, like, I just want to let you know, I'm doing my best. And whoever is going to be preaching out of the text of Revelation, they're going to be doing their best to try to teach this through a pastoral heart. Okay, so none of us are proclaiming to be the expert of revelation. And also, like, there's so many details, so many facts in this letter. There's so many theological nuances that there's absolutely no way that we can cover them all. There is no way we can do it. So we're going to walk through these texts and be thinking through the lens of a pastor of how to stir up faithfulness to Jesus. How to be a disciple who will follow after Jesus no matter what the pressure is and to stir up your affection to worship him. That is going to be our, primarily, our primary angle. We will not engage in speculation. That's not going to happen. We're not going to say 2024 is going to be the end of the world because there's a presidential election that many of us are scared of. However, I believe that is a key reason why we're doing Revelation, is to walk into this year with the right perspective to understand who really is on the throne, who really is sovereign, who really has the authority. Right? So, we're not going to engage in speculation. We're not going to engage in doomsday theories because this letter was not given to help us map out as a puzzle all of the current events. That's not it. So, we're going to try to do what we talked about last week. We're going to root our study in its historical particularity. We're going to be basing this in the then and there. How did the seven churches in Asia Minor hear this letter? And how did this letter encourage them? We're going to dig into that because revelation can never mean what it never meant. It's just, it's not it. It's not this moving progressive thing that changes with time. Because otherwise, what would be the point of writing it back 2,000 years ago? That's not the point. So we're going to be rooting this in its historical context. And from there, we're going to go, how does this apply to us in the here and now? How can we use this letter? What is God's intention for revealing this to us today? Okay, so that's why we're going to do that. And now, also, I know. Oh, do I know? There's pre-millennial. There's post-millennial. There's online millennial There's pre-trib. There's post-trib. There's this trib and that trib and six trib and nine. I'm making things up. Like, like it, it's like we're not going to take any certain approach. We're going to do what some theologians are calling right now an eclectic approach because there's primarily four different. Angles that people take in approaching Revelation. I'm not going to dig into that right now, but it's in your study guide, which Pastor Chad did an amazing job. So I want to encourage you, dig into that, okay? And so we're going to take this eclectic approach because every single angle has some validity and also every single angle has some things that are just wrong, that don't fit with all of Revelation. Revelation wasn't given to us to create this beautiful systematic timeline. Of events, it's 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 not given to us for that reason, and so I know right there, right there, I just offended some people, um, and that's okay. Just don't email me. <laughs> okay. So with all of that being said, let's pray, because I feel the weight of this task, and I also. You feel so incredibly excited for us as a church. Lord, I ask that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would understand this the way you would want us to understand it. Help us to walk out of this time dedicated to be more faithful to you, to be loyal to you. Give us eyes to be able to perceive reality. Help us to discern the darkness and the light. Lord, I pray that we would be people who will follow hard after you and that we would just give you our worship. You are the Alpha. You are the Omega. You are the Almighty. You are the Lamb that was slain. Thank you, God, for giving us this beautiful picture. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher, our guide, our instructor, Lord. I pray that you would give me discernment to say what it is that's on your heart and not to say everything that's on my notes. So Lord, I pray, God, that your grace would be more than enough this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, Revelation 1 through 8. So I have to spend some time setting the stage. Okay? To which some of you are like, I thought you just did. Um, no, I did it. We have to understand it's historical context. Like we have to spend some time doing that. Okay? Because otherwise we will float and we will be tempted with speculation and misinterpreting this whole letter. So I want to talk about what Revelation is and what it's not. And I'm just going to say real quickly, Revelation is not a crystal ball or some form of code book that we should bring with us when we read the news. It's not a magical book with deep-hitting meaning and secrets that's only for a select few. Revelation is not meant to be entertaining. It's not meant to lay out for us a timeline of all future events. It's not a catalog of future predictions. That's not what Revelation is. Rather, it's a letter that was written to guide followers of Jesus for all time and how to remain faithful in hopeful as we will face the difficult realities of life on this earth. This letter was given to us, this revelation was revealed to us to put some resolve into the hearts of the believers in the church to live for Jesus in a world that is anti-Jesus. That's the heart of this. Revelation was meant to give confidence to the believers that they're not on the losing team. Even though it looks like evil is conquering and evil is triumphing, you need to see how heaven sees what is here on earth. And when we get that glimpse, it gives us so much confidence and hope because we start to see what is true. It's about perception. It gives us the ability to be able to interrogate our present circumstances and our present culture in order to see it rightly. To understand what's at stake and understand the motivation behind decisions and motivation behind all empires on earth. Absolutely important for us. So if we think about it this way, okay? I want you to think of Revelation more through this lens. Revelation is actually more about what we are to do, who we are to be, and what we can expect as we wait for Jesus' return. This is a letter to the church for all time on how the church and what the church should be doing, who we should be, and what we can expect as we wait. For the arrival of Jesus. So it's not about prediction. It's about perception. It's about discipleship. So as we look at Revelation, there's primarily going to be two things. Always in contrast. We're going to have two cities. Babylon and the New Jerusalem. Babylon represents basically any empire. Right? It is the, the kingdom of darkness. You have Babylon in the city of Jerusalem. We're going to have two different lords. We got capital L, Lord Jesus, and small Lord L, Satan. We got two forces constantly at war with each other. We have the angels and those who are ready in heaven that are waging war against the dragon and all of its weird beasts. This letter is given as a whole. All 22 chapters to a particular people in a particular context. It's not, chapters 1 through 3 is not just written for the seven churches in Asia, and chapters 4 through 22 is for the future church. No, all of it was written to them back then and there, and all of it is written for us in the here and now. So, for us to understand its context, let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, so that we can understand where John was. John basically lets his readers know, hey, I'm on the island of Patmos. And I'm here because I've been a true and faithful witness or like one who's holding true to the word of God. I am here as a prisoner. Patmos was a secluded, uninhabitable island where he would take dissidents and just put them there to work in the rock quarries there. And John was an old man when he wrote this letter And more than likely, he wrote it between 92 and 96 A.D., somewhere in that time. And at this point, there was a lot of things that were going bad for the church. I mean, bad. Peter, Paul, Timothy, all of them been executed or murdered. The church is under extreme persecution. Jerusalem has been ransacked and burned to the ground. That happened in AD 70. There's this historical event that happened in Masada. If you've ever been to Israel, sometimes you'll go there on this tour where Rome was trying to wipe this group of people out. And these faithful Jewish loyalists to God went up to Masada and they held out. And before the Roman Empire finally built that siege ramp, all the way up there, there was mass suicide because they didn't want to die at the hands of the Roman Empire. I mean, we're talking extreme persecution. Nero blamed the Christians for the fire in Rome. And then he started just killing and burning Christians for sport. I mean, there are so many things that are fascinating when we start to piece this stuff together. If we were to look at some of the historical context of Rome, all the way back in 29 B.C., people from Asia Minor, where these seven churches are from, sent a delegation to Rome to talk Caesar Augustus, which should ring a bell for us because that's a little bit of Luke 2 Christmas message right there. And they came 29 years before the birth of Christ and said, can we create a cult that would worship you, Caesar, as Lord? To which Caesar said, no. No. But you can create a cult and worship the goddess Roma. So after Caesar Augustus died, the Roman Senate voted to deify Caesar Augustus. Now he's a god, and Tiberius, who was the Caesar or the emperor when Jesus was living and doing his ministry, he is now called get this, you ready? Tiberius was called in Rome the son of God. Very rhetorical. Jesus is the Son of God, Son of God. It's the same snapshot what we try to see in heaven. Like Jesus alone is king, and yet Satan wants to be this little phony and imitate and do all these things. And so when you see Jesus coming out, you know in Jerusalem, it's like Satan kind of put up his own little puppet as the son of God, Tiberius. And now you have Caesar worship, like this imperial cult that started to happen. And when the church, when Jesus ascended to heaven, man, this cult went all over the Roman Empire. About 40 temples were built dedicated to worship Caesar as Lord, right? And so like In every city, Ephesus, Laodicea, all the ones that we're going to read in chapters 2 and 3, every single one of them was a major hub of the cult that worshiped Caesar as Lord. Domitian was the, the, the Caesar when John was exiled. He was violent. He was cruel beyond all reason. And he wanted to hold Rome together by making everybody worship him. And so what they would do is because all of these temples were everywhere, they wanted you to go to the temple, grab some of the incense, take it and throw it on the fire. And when you do, you just simply say, Dominus is Lord. Caesar is Lord. No big deal. Just do it. We're good. Because Domitian didn't care what you did with the rest of your life. He didn't care if you worshiped some other god. As long as you called out and cried out that he was Lord, he's fine. And so most people in the Roman Empire were polytheists. What's the difference? To add on another god to the resume. No big deal. We'll just do it. But to John, it was everything. Because John knew there was only one who was Lord. And there's only one who's worthy of my heart. There's only one who defeated death in the grave. There's only one, and his name is Jesus. And I will not share that allegiance with someone else. And so John refused to throw that incense on the fire. And because of that, he was exiled to Patmos. So now the churches are left without their pastor, without their big apostle leaders, and pressure is coming hard on them. And at this time, a lot of churches are facing the persecution or there are some churches that are being complicit and compromising, saying, what's the big deal if we're looking a little bit like Rome? Not a big deal. We don't want her out of the cage, so we'll take some other things. We'll allow that in. No big deal. We can follow Jesus and still be partial to Rome. We're all good. So God sent This message to stir them up. You with me? Okay. We know that believers in the early church were harassed by Roman soldiers. They were losing their businesses, they were losing their homes, they were being murdered, their families were being ripped apart, immorality was starting to creep back into the church and false doctrine was being rampant but at the same time the kingdom of God was spreading throughout the world and people who once belonged to the kingdom of darkness were now being transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. It was a spiritual war. And what Revelation does is to help us be able to perceive what Rome is doing in light of spiritual realities. This is so incredibly important. Friends, it is so tempting as a church to become complacent, isn't it? It's so tempting as a church to put America first, isn't it? you be like, it's not that big of a deal to be this kind of person, to pursue this kind of life. Like, I mean, like we struggle. Like, let's just be honest. We struggle with wanting to tell people about Jesus. Because we don't want to offend. We don't want to be weird. We don't want someone to tweet about us. And tweeting is even thing. I don't know, X, whatever. Like, we, like we, we were so cautious. But, man, people died to be loyal to Jesus. Absolute dissidents. And I think it's important for us to go, Lord, where have we partnered up potentially with the empires of this world? And maybe where have we become complacent or where have we compromised our loyalty? Because what Revelation is going to show us over and over and over is that you can only be loyal to either the lamb or the dragon. You're either loyal to the lamb or the dragon. And Jesus said as much, right? You can only worship one. And so we need to be stirred. So this context is important because this message that John gets from Jesus deeply encourages the church. All right, verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him—I love that. I I want you to like. We're going to have some fun here. We're going to try some stuff. God gave him. God gave Jesus to show His servants what must soon take place. He made it known. He made it known to his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time, because the time is near. John to the seven churches in Asia tech issues here. John to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, I want to make clear one thing, because this is important, this letter is unique to all other New Testament letters because it has three different genres all wrapped up into one. So for some of you who are literary types, you're going to love this. This, first and foremost, genre number one is, is apocalyptic, and that's where this word revelation comes from, okay? The word revelation literally is just the word apocalypsis, which is apocalypse. Now, what, immediately, what comes to your mind when you hear the word apocalypse apocalypse. No, I think of like World War Z. (laughs) Like, I think of zombies and all that kind of stuff. It's like cataclysmic end time world events that happen. Like, it's the apocalypse. But that's not how this word is actually used. This word just simply means a revealing. So, like when Jesus says, like, Lord, you've hidden, Father, thank you that you've hidden these things from like the wise and the learned, but you apocalypsed it to children. You revealed it to children. So this is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's the revealing, it's the pulling back of the curtain to help us see what is happening in the heavenlies as we're living right now on the earth. So it's apocalyptic that's a unique genre. Apocalyptic literature is loaded with images and metaphors and numbers and symbols that you're just like, whoa, this is crazy. So that's why it freaks us out. So when you see the dragon with seven heads, it's not literally a dragon with seven heads. The word number seven is a pitch is a word picture that shows us or tells us that it's about perfection or completeness or whole like so we got to understand some of this language it's a little bit hard and tricky but apocalypse is simply a revealing the second thing that this is is it's a prophecy Now, when we think about the word prophecy, we tend to think of something like, hey, we're going to be describing and telling future events and prediction kind of stuff. But that's not really how prophecy is used in the biblical world. Prophecy is primarily, thus saith the Lord... This is what God declares as true. That's really what prophecy is. It's like God bringing truth and in detail into a circumstance. Now, there are times when God will open the eyes of people to see future events and to predict future events. But that's not the heart of prophecy because prophecy is primarily about what God declares and then how we are to respond to that declaration. So if we were to understand this as prophecy, that means God intends for his church to be able to read this and to be able to understand it and to adjust their lives to it. It's not about entertainment. It's not about speculation. It's about discipleship. So it's, a, it's an apocalyptic literature. It's prophetic literature, but it's also a letter. It's pastoral. Written by a real person to real people in a real circumstance to the seven churches of Asia, modern day Turkey. In these seven churches, I'm going to say this these seven churches do not represent seven different church eras. That's not what it means. These are literally seven churches on the most popular mail route that would happen there. But also, the number seven, it's complete. It's whole. It's perfect. So these seven churches represent that this revelation is applicable, it's relevant, and influential for all churches for all time. That's the idea. So there's real specific things that are written to a real specific people. So that's why we got to understand its context. So that's why this letter is Complicated because it's three genres all wrapped up into one, but it's absolutely beautiful. So, primarily, if you were to go, What's the summary? How can I just like hang on to this in a simple way? This letter is the revealing of Jesus in the heavenlies, which is given by Jesus, God gave him. Who's him? Jesus. God the Father gave this to Jesus and he brought it. This is the revealing. It's the pulling back of the curtain to show us the glorified, risen Lord in heavens today. What you see in Revelation is what's real right now in the heavenlies. It's not somewhere out there. He is reigning and ruling in the heaven. There's a cosmic war that's happening. And it's bleeding over into our tangible, physical, material world. This was written to followers of Jesus to strengthen their resolve. That's why I love, he shows us his servants, his witnesses, people who are to be testifying to the good news of Jesus, which is you and I. So this is specifically written to followers of Jesus to what soon must take place. Now, what does that mean? Because towards the end of this in verse 8, it's like the end is near. What does that mean? Let's biblical thinking. When Jesus ascended to the Father, we entered the end times. This is eschatological thinking. When you read in the New Testament, and you're going to read it multiple places the end is near, the judge is standing at the door, all things, like you hear this over and over and over. This end is near, what is to come? This eschatological thinking is just meant to stir us up to anticipation and expectancy, not to predict. This is meant to stir us up. His return is imminent. He is coming. We don't know when. That's irrelevant. We were told even by Jesus, be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready. Because you don't know when the hour is going to come. Be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready. Because as the hour approaches to his actual coming, Satan is going to throw a greater temper tantrum like a two-year-old in the cereal aisle who didn't get the cereal that he wanted. Like the, 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 the battle in heaven is done. It's defeat. It's done. It's vi- he's just like gasping his last breath. He's throwing a Hail Mary punch as he's going down. The battle in Armageddon isn't going to be the, the, the divisive victory for heaven. No, the victory was established at the cross and the resurrection. Done. Armageddon is just Satan's last gasp. So this is meant to stir us up like, listen, I know all hell is breaking loose here. Things are coming against you and it looks like evil is winning and everything's coming. But hang on. And how am I going to encourage you to hang on? Let me show you what is real in heaven so that way you can be encouraged and you can take heart. Because the lion and the lamb has overcome. So beautiful. It's coming near, which should give us a great hope in anticipation. We have precedent that he is coming back because he came once. And he's promised us that he will come. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because Time is near. There is no other letter in all of scripture that promises this kind of blessing. And this isn't just, oh, I heard it. It's not like because you heard it this morning, you guys are now like super blessed. Who hear and keep. Who allow this apocalypse to affect the way they live to take their confusion over the pain and sorrow and darkness and find the peace and rest that God is sovereign in the midst of. Those who are willing to stay loyal to the Lamb when all of a sudden at some point, I'm telling you it's going to happen, culture is going to come fierce on the church. They won't capitulate or compromise. Blessed are those who hear these and take it to heart, who hang on to it and remain to be faithful. Blessed is the one who overcomes. How do we overcome? We will see in Revelation, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Jesus is Lord. I'm part of his kingdom. Rome, if you knew, Domitian, the, empire, the emperor during this time, he dubbed Rome the eternal city. Isn't that fascinating? The eternal city. And here's John is saying, no. Rome is a man made dominion. It will have its end. There's one eternal city, and it's the city of God. Look at how this letter is addressed. Verse 4. Grace and peace to you from, from who? This is so incredibly cool. This this should like just bless your socks off. That is a stupid statement. It should just bless you so significantly. Grace and peace from the one who is, who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne let not let, don't let that confuse you it's the number 7 and 7 means completion perfect whatever so if it's the seven spirits we have we have connections to like Isaiah 12 this is a reference to the holy spirit it's not seven different spirits it's the holy spirit You got to see the Trinity here. Grace and peace to you from the one who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth. Grace and peace from God to you. What is the context of the church as they're hearing this letter? Persecution. Loss, suffering, death, capitulation, compromise. God is coming, bringing this message through Jesus to pull back the curtain, and He wants people to know on the very forefront grace, undeserved love. That's why this letter should not scare believers. Grace, the basis of our salvation, and peace. Shalom and wholeness, so that there is no anxiety and anxiousness over the things of this world. Peace is a fruit from grace. Grace and peace from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, which is essentially the name Yahweh. It's how God described himself to Moses in Exodus 3 I am who I am. The one who is, who was, and I love the fact that this is thrown in there. Who is to come? I'm coming. Grace and peace, I'm coming. Not will come. Like, like I, I, I hope to come. I hope I'm not hung up. I may come. No, I, I will come. Definitive, boom, it's prophecy. I declare, it, thus saith the Lord. From the Holy Spirit, but also from Jesus. And I love the way that Jesus is described. Absolutely love this. He's the faithful witness. <laughs> I mean, these, these words, you you cannot fly past these from Jesus. He's the faithful witness. In other words, he's gonna be the trustworthy revealer of the Father. He's gonna tell you the truth. He's not going to sugarcoat it. He's not going to lie. He's not going to deceive. He is faithful. He will not turn aside. He won't leave you. He won't abandon you. He won't forsake you. He was faithful to the point of death on the cross, which, by the way, was our punishment. And he did it himself. He's the faithful witness of the Father's heart for us. He will tell you the truth about yourself and this world because he loves you. Grace and peace from God, the Trinity. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's also the firstborn from the dead, which means he is the Lord of the dead and Lord of the living. He's the first one to die resurrect and then to stay alive forevermore. And because he's the firstborn, he's essentially the older brother. And an older brother in Jewish world would always come and take the younger siblings back with him to where he is going. And Jesus said, I'm preparing a room for you. I will not leave you as orphans. He's the firstborn of the dead, which also tells us that he has absolute authority and supremacy over all things. It's victory, which means we will have victory because we get to, by faith, live the life that he has lived. But now look at, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Imagine hearing that in first century. You'd be like, um, John, are you just getting too old? Did the heat get to you? Do you know what's happening How can you say this? Doesn't that feel like a little bit of disconnect? Like he's the king of all things just because he's allowing some things to unfold here. Does that mean that he's not the king of kings back in the unseen realm? He absolutely is because that is true. That means this is true. He is over all things and there's nothing on earth. There's no ruler, no president, nothing. Nothing. That is on their own independence. They're all under his authority and under his control. Even though human history, world history, through all of the centuries, is constantly a story about nations at war where the strongest prevail. It's not always been, and it still isn't today, that all good things and good morals and good values will triumph and right and in, in goodness and in, in rightness is always wins the day. No, it doesn't. But behind all of the chaos, we who follow Jesus recognize Jesus Christ, who chose the way of obedience and humiliation. Who allowed the hour of darkness to have its way. For salvation to have its way. He has been exalted at God's right hand. Sitting as Lord. Ruling over the rulers of the earth. And when he comes again. His kingdom and his authority will be made absolute manifest to the visible and invisible. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. No matter what world leader is strutting around thinking that he's all that, and, and I almost said a bag of chips, I just did. That's really lame again. Imagining himself to be all powerful and using all of his power to his, exhibit his own kingdom and his own leadership ability, John says, No, Jesus is sovereign over that person. This is so, so beautiful. Because I love what comes next. To him. It's almost as if John just like was reading this, getting this download from the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden he's just like, man, to him who loves us. Whew. That's present tense, friends. To him who loves us, continuous, every day, every moment, never stopping to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. He set us free. He died our death. He paid our price that we couldn't pay. We were in a debt, a sin debt that required our life. He paid it. He paid it so that we could be set free. Rescued from the dominion of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of the son whom he loves, the kingdom of light. And he made us a kingdom of priests. Now we have our unique responsibility and privilege to co-reign with Jesus, to mediate on his behalf, to be his ambassadors on his behalf in a world that is foreign to us because now we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is not our home. And so we are here as priests, interceding, mediating, ministering to. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We'll get to seven and eight next week. I want to end with this because as I was writing this, I found myself constantly in this tension going, if oppressive governments are under his control and if false teachers are under his control and evil is under his control and the suffering of his saints is under his control, his control and the destruction of the devil is under his control. Time is under his control and everything, earth and stars, everything is under his control. Why does this all happen? I found myself constantly asking that question, why does that still happen? Revelation doesn't necessarily resolve that tension, but it helps us understand and see a little bit more beyond that question In asking maybe the reverse. Like, what if God did not choose to reveal to us these things? What if God chose to not let us know that he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and overall? Like, what if he chose to not extend grace and peace with us? Towards us. Like, what, what, without Jesus being a faithful witness, like, how would we know what is true in a world of so many lies? Like, without Jesus being the firstborn from the dead, like, how would we have any hope of this life and even beyond this life? Like, without Jesus being the ruler and the kings of, of the earth, what would keep us from despair over the corruption, oppression, and misery that is absolutely pervasive in this world? And if Jesus did not love us by freeing us from our sins, we would still be ruled by them in the here and now, destined for destruction. Just because we don't understand it all doesn't mean it isn't true. But he did give us an apocalypse, a revealing of the glorious Son of God. He's given us his perspective so you and I can meet the uncertainty, the unfairness, and the undoing of this life in this world with faith and hope. When evil comes crashing at us, we can overcome because Jesus faced it. He took on the worst of it. to the one who loves us. So my prayer for us as a church is that we would be stirred, that 2024 we would be stirred to passion and love and faithfulness and not shaken, not given to despair, to anger, to evil, to compromise, that we would stand loyal to Jesus, pointing people to the one who loves And yet at the same time, letting people know that there is an end. He is coming. And at that point, every knee will bow. So bow that knee now because he loves you. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this message. God, it's it's convicting. It's encouraging. And so, Lord, we, we come to you in humility and we just say, Lord, would you just convict us? Show us the areas maybe where we have compromised or maybe where we have grown complacent. Lord, would you stir us up out of the areas of fear and apathy or maybe we're afraid to tell people about Jesus or to live out loud for Jesus Lord, I can't help but think of the passage where you said that if we're ashamed of you, that you'll be ashamed of us before the Father. So Lord, help us to see. Help us to see what is unseen and to take that as a present reality in our life. Lord, you are the alpha. You are the beginning. You are the archetype of all things. You are the perfecter of our faith. You are the omega. You're like the sole purpose of everything. You're the teleos, the end. There's no one like you. There's, there's no name like yours, Lord. Thank you for being a faithful witness. Thank you for being the firstborn of the dead. Thank you for being the ruler over all kingdoms and kings. You are holy. You are beautiful. You alone are worthy. Lord, we ask that you'd be pleased with our worship. And even if we're at a spot of tension and difficulty in our own lives, God, I pray that you would receive this sacrifice of praise. Praise in Christ's name.